This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly supported by McDelivery, bringing you the food you love. McDelivery brings a top-tier lineup of food right to your door. No matter the results, you'll always be winning with McDelivery. Order now on the McDonald's app and you'll get rewards points delivered too. So that ordering today means some tasty rewards for tomorrow. Only via app at participating restaurants. 18 plus rewards registration required. Points only on menu items, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. The Camp Monsters podcast from REI Co-op Studios is back with a new season telling the tales of terrifying encounters with the mysterious beasts of America. Hear about the creatures that wander the woods and lurk in the water, the ones that fly through the air or even prowl around a backyard like yours. We search the country for camp monsters. All you have to do is search for Camp Monsters from REI Co-op Studios wherever you listen to podcasts. You're listening to the West MY podcast with Dave and X. Oi, oi! Hello and welcome to the West Ham Way podcast with myself Dave Walker and XWHU employee. This week we dip into the archives and revisit some classic conversations with ex-players and celebrity fans before getting news from X and answering questions from patrons of the West Ham Way. This week we're looking at some classic conversational clips with ex-players, starting with Alvin Martin, who reminisced about joining West Ham as a young man. Well, I came down uh, through a, a guy called John McBride, who was running a, a, a team in Liverpool, you know, 50 under-16 team in Liverpool, and uh, and he, he, he had a contact, uh, Wally mm-hmm. St. Pierre at the club, and he knew, obviously, people like Ron Greenwood, um, and we had a meeting with Ron Greenwood and John Lyle in the Adelphi Hotel in Liverpool about a year before I came down here because yeah. I was already on uh, Associated Schoolboy forms with Everton mm-hmm. and Everton dithered and when I say dithered they offered me a contract but it wasn't a full apprenticeship it was a semi-professional apprenticeship mm-hmm. and, um, and I decided that wasn't good enough and I was going to get the train down to, um, to QPR and West Ham to have a trial mm-hmm. so I jumped the train down to QPR the first two weeks there we'd run in, run in, run in it was pre-season it was a good club and they couldn't make their mind up on me they wanted me to stay on for another two weeks um, and I said that I was going on holiday but I was, I was coming to West Ham the following day mm-hmm. Uh, so I had a, t- a two-week trial at West Ham. I, I went there. I knew I had a second bite at the Cherry QPR. But within a week, Ron Greenwood had offered me a, um, a full apprenticeship and I, I had no hesitation in signing it. As soon as I went into West Ham, it was a, it was just that I knew it was right. Mm. Yeah, that was going to be my next question, actually. Why did you know it was right? 
Different reasons. You, you feel there's a friendliness about the club. As soon as I got to Chadwell Heath, I uh, was given a kit roll. I asked if I wanted a bite to eat before we trained. He said, yeah, where do I sit? He said, over there. I said, well, that's the first team. He said, doesn't matter. We all muck in here together. So that was one thing. Mm. You were close to everyone. You could see people like Billy Bonds and Trevor Brooken and, and sit and eat with them. Um, the coaching was unbelievable. Ron Greenwood and John Lyle at that time. John Lyle was the assistant manager and Ron Greenwood was, was an unbelievable. It's very hard to explain in a short uh, time that we've got how excellent he was in everything that he did was there was a purpose to it and John obviously took that, uh, that philosophy through his career um, and I was just very fortunate to, to turn up at a, a time when the coaches were fantastic and the first year that uh, Ronnie Boyce was, was a coach was that year he was my um, youth team manager after I'd signed Apprentice so I was really fortunate everything just was in place for me mm. Um so when you first got to the club, was there any players that kind of looked out for you, took you under their wing at all? You know, you've come all the way down from Liverpool. You'd like to think the elder pros might have... And, and also, to jump on the back of that, that must be hard for a young lad. You're not going to a local club. Yeah. You're coming down south. And that's... I mean, I'm assuming it was a big cultural change in those days. Maybe it wasn't. But that must have been quite daunting for you as well, from a personal perspective. Yeah, I mean, it was... It was, it was um, I, I, the, the football was easy. I found the football easy. But, like, it, it was when you go home um, and you didn't have enough money. So whereas like I was on £8 a week the first year, if I didn't have enough money at the end of the month, I, I, I couldn't get any money from anywhere. Whereas if you were living at home, like the lads who were living in West Ham and East Ham with their families, they could borrow a pound or two pound, get them by for another few days. I, I didn't, it was things like that I found very difficult. A lot yeah. made me grow up. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that was hard. I think it, it's harder when the football's not going well. If the football, I couldn't wait to get up in the morning. Mm. I couldn't wait. I used to get excited going to bed, thinking I'm going to get up in the morning, and I'd go down to uh, the main ground where I'd catch the minibus, and we'd we'd load all the kit on as apprentices, and we'd travel to Chadwell Heath. Ronnie Boyce would drive the minibus. We'd get all the kit out, lay it all out for the first team, get ours out, then we'd train, then we'd come back in. And then we'd uh, get all the kits, put them all into the uh, the skips, take them back to the main grounds, um, get them all ready, washed and, and rolled for the following day. And we'd train in the afternoon and then we'd come back and load the skips ready for the following morning. I, I just loved it. I just thought it was a fantastic life. And I was genuinely excited about going in every day. And, and was there any players that sort of... St- did look after you at all, okay, but like sort of. I think that come advice. later on. I was I could look after myself physically. Yeah, I think there was a bit of banter that I was on the end of initially. Yeah, um, but it was it was a very friendly club. The, yeah. the lads who were in there: Paul Brush, Alan Kirbisley, Jeff Pike, Terry mm. Haylock, Terry Sharp, Lou Murphy, Pat Creasy. You know, it was a, it was a really and we got to the FA Youth Cup final that year. Yeah, so it was a good side that I'd come into mm. and. Um, a very good time to be a West Ham player. Yeah. Here's Harry Redknapp giving his thoughts on how Frank Lampard Jr. was treated by West Ham fans. Well, it was sad, really, because when you look at him, if he was born West Ham. Mm. Yeah. He was more West Ham than anybody. He's, you know, I've got pictures at home of him and his little boy. He's always he's got West Ham kit on. Always got West Ham kit on. He lived for West Ham. His dad played for twenty years. Yeah. For West Ham, and he grew he grew up just being West Ham crazy. That was his life with West Ham. Yeah, that is sad. And, and, you know, when you look at him, people can say what they want. I mean, here's a kid. He was the best trainer. By one, I only ever met one person in my whole life who trained as hard as him or as good as him, and that was his dad. 
and that's obviously where he got it from. Yeah. He trained like a lunatic because when I signed him, there was people at the club, and what, I'll be honest, who said to me, Harry, he can't, he's never going to make it, he can't run, he can't get round the pitch. How's he going to play? He's never going to be a player. Uh, but he, every day after training, you look out of, the, out of my office at four o'clock, getting dark, winter, raining. He'd be out there we'd doing his sprints every day. Bag of balls, shooting, left foot, right foot, left foot, right foot. Every single day. He just trained and trained and trained. He'd go home at night and he'd go and run around the streets, run three or four or five mile, go to a four mile, five mile run after training all day. He just was so dedicated. He wanted to be a player and he had his old man's attitude that nothing was going to stop him. And that was how he was. It was the same. Frank Senior, um, I, I can remember as if it was like this very second. I was in the dressing room. Ron Greenwood walked in the dressing room, said to Frank Senior, uh, Frank, can I word? He said, uh, I'll fix you up to go to Torquay on loan. John Bond was at Torquay at the time with Kenny Brown, two West Ham legends. They were running the club. I think Franco Farrell might have been the manager at the time or whatever. West Ham legend, Franco Farrell. They were, we had a big connection with Torquay and Ron had fixed up. They wanted to take Frank on loan. Frank said, well, I don't want to play for Torquay. He said, I want to play for West Ham. What's wrong with me? And he said, well, he said, well, tell me what's wrong with me. You never tell me what's wrong with me. He said, how can I get... And he said, well, you, you're not quick enough, Frank. You know, you, you, you pace and you've got... Frank went, no, I'll show you. And Frank Senior, every day after training, he'd put his spikes on. He'd do his sprints, 10 yards, sharp, bang, bang, bang. Every day, every day, never missed. Other people used to look at him, look at him, you know. He didn't give a monkeys. He wanted to be a player. And the kid was exactly the same. Mm. Listen, we can all say whatever you want. People say, oh, well, I didn't, I wasn't his manager at at Chelsea when he went on to score 20 goals every year for midfield. And play 100 and God knows how many times for England. I mean, second in world player. That's what he did. Mm. It was Mm. other kids there. He had an attitude about him. He was so determined. And so he was just, nothing was going to stop him. He wanted to be a footballer. That's all he lived for. And he wanted to be a West Ham footballer. And all that, that was his threat, was all he was into. He was a West Ham Barmy. Mm. You know? Mm. That is very shame. I thought it was hurtful that he should get, he should get less stick really than anybody because of the, the way, you know, the way he'd grown up with the club. And he loved the club. That was his club. That was his team. Because it, his dad was a legend at the club. Yeah. So he, he just lived for West Ham. It was, so it was it was sad to see. And even when he went back there after, you know, they didn't give Rio stick. Joe didn't get stick. But Frank got stick, you know. And maybe Frank might have said something that, you know, we all make, we all say things at times. And people can, it all gets blown. Oh, he said he's going to a bigger club. Some rubbish. He might have said that because Pete was slagging him off mm. at the time. I mean, it's he in, in the West Ham was really, he was claret and blue through and through. Yeah. Make no mistake about that. Yeah, no, 100%. And, and I'm not just saying it because we're speaking to you now. I mean, you know, our podcasts are archives and anyone can access it. We've always said the same. We've always said that we, we genuinely felt that the treatment of Lampard was harsh and, um, and we, we never really understood it no. I mean we're not talking no, about when he left it was when he played for West Ham I mean you know it, and I think you summed it up right I think the, the word you use is right it's sad because when you he, he, the way you've described him I don't think a lot of people even knew that uh, growing mm. up as a boy in West Ham kits and West Ham oh, Barmy um, every picture I've got in my house of yeah. Frank my wife you know we looked the other day she had a 
some old pictures. There's Frank in the garden playing. He's always got West, he's nothing but West Ham kit. He was just lived, West Ham was all pictures everywhere, all over the room. That's all he had. That was all his life was. Yeah. And his dad was, a, his dad obviously, his dad played for 20 years at fullback. His dad was someone who the manager said, well, Frank, I want you to go to Torquay. The best manager, the cleverest manager, football man I ever met, Ron Green, but he, he, he was making a big mistake. He wasn't going to loan him. He said, if you do well on loan, Frank, they might sign you. He was going to let him go. But there was this boy who said, no, no, I ain't going to talk here. I want to play for West Ham. Mm-hmm. What's wrong with it? I'll show you. And that's what he done. We all went, anybody else said, gone, oh, okay. We'd all been choked, but you'd have got me thumbed. He went, no, I'm not doing it. I'm not going to talk here. And, and that was how he was. And the kid was exactly the same. So surely he deserves all the credit in the world. Mm. You should knock people like that. If mm. other kids come in, they're superstar schoolboy internationals, they walk in, think they've made it, big time Charlie's, they, all they want to do is get a big watch and buy a flash car. He, he, he didn't. He just wanted to play with West Ham. Mm. And he worked at it and trained like a lunatic. He, he dragged Rio. Rio saw him training and Rio's attitude got... Rio was great anyway. He was always going to be a Rolls Royce, but Rio trained harder because he saw Frank doing it. Carrick, Joe, they all looked at Frank and thought, he set an example to all them boys. And they all grew up, all six of them, to be fantastic professionals and amazing boys. Every one of them. All great kids, great lads and great men now. Mm. There's not one of them I look at and think, oh, I loved all of them. And they were just amazing. And Frank was the, was the lead, really, in, in the way he trained and the way he showed them how to behave and get on with them and work on it every day to become a top player. And he didn't, he wasn't as good as Joe. Joe was on another planet or anybody else. Rio was on another, Rio was at 15. My God, what we got here, we got a Rolls Royce here. Mm. Uh, and Frank became a Rolls Royce. Over to Julian Dix now, speaking about the Dimitri Pae situation. The thing is, like we with Dimmy, Dimmy was a fantastic player. Um, and I like obviously he went about it the wrong way. So for me, if he had turned around and went, listen, I need to go back home. I need to go back home. Um, but I will play. I will play for West Ham for as long as I have to. But please, can I go back home? Which I, mean, I know the gaffer would have went, Dimmy. Yet yeah, not a problem. We'll, we'll sort it. Um, but he didn't. He he went. Listen, I'm, that's it. I'm not playing anymore. Um, and I remember saying to the gaffer, listen, you have to go public with this because if you don't, the fans are going to fuck you because mm. they're not going to know the truth. Mm. Um, mm. And he did. He, he he went public with it. And at the end of the day, obviously, it, it fell back on Dimmy. But he, he, Dimmy, was, he was a good lad. I mean, he's a really, really good lad. He's a fantastic player. Um, I don't, to be honest, I don't think... People got the ump with him. They understood why he wanted to go back home, but he just maybe he got advised wrong. Mm. So, mm. but like I said, for me, he was uh, yeah, he was he was he was super for West Ham. I mean, wh- whatever happened, he w- he was he was a godsend for West Ham when he was there. Uh, just on on Dimitri, I mean, because he was one hell of a player, and the fans loved him, and the players must have loved playing with him in the. The gaffer must have loved managing him, but yeah. uh, what was the, the the final kind of meeting between Dimitri and Slav? Was there ever a handshake? Was it just a case of 
Dimitri walked out and never came back and the transfer was done. How, how did he actually officially leave? To be fair, I, I, I don't know, Dave. I remember, like, Sandra Gapolish and Yepido Public um, sticking with the 23s. Um, and yeah. that was it. He stuck him with the 23s. And i never seen Demi again. Mm. That was mm. it. That day he went with the 23s. I, I didn't see him again. We asked Tony Cotty to choose one player from his time at West Ham to fit into the current squad. And this was his answer. I probably would go for Alan Devonshire. I, I, I think, that for me, Alan Devonshire was... Um, best player I played with at West Ham I mean I was lucky I played with some wonderful players you know the likes of Trevor Brookian and Billy Bonds my old teammate Frank McAvenny obviously springs to mind um, you know many many others Julian Dix many others that I could name as well but you know I, I love playing with Alan Dev and he was he was just such a fantastic player um, up until his injury in, in 1984 when he'd done his crew shirt he was out for 18 months and then he came back into the, the boys of 86 team where we finished third and he was still, still the best player and he'd been out for 18 months. <laughs> I mean, he was just such a, a wonderful player. So, I, I, you know, I'd love to get Dev into that team that's playing today. But having said that, you know, I think the one thing we would, we would probably all agree on that you, you need if you're going to try and go to the next level, like what I was just talking about for Dev, you need someone who's going to score the goal. So, mm. I don't know, there's probably an argument for a, a, a Frank McAvenny actually, on, on, in his pomp and heyday, if, if you can get someone who scores 26 league goals in the season, then you know that you ain't going to be far away in terms of doing things. Here's Razor Ruddock telling us the hilarious story of taking Harry Redknapp to court. Yeah, I've got to ask you this one question, because we've had a Harry on the show. Is the time that you took Harry to court over a dispute, over a oh, fight? Oh, man, fuck me. No, it was West Ham. I had a fight... I... I went to Glen Eagles, I beat the fuck out of Mike Newell. He fucking used to wind me up. So I beat the fuck out of Mike Newell. So I get nicked. So I get nicked, blow. I'm meant to be in training. That's it. At the end of the season, I was injured. I'm meant to be, you're meant to be in training until you're fit, then you go away on holiday. So I, I, I just ran up and said, I'm ill. Last game of the season, I'm ill. So I went to Glen Eagles, me. It used to be every year, it's been me, Alan Shearer, uh, fucking hell, Stephen Hendry, Snooker, Jimmy. They're not fucking, just fucking, what's his fucking name? Jim Davidson, sorry, yeah. Uh, Mike Newell, some others. We just go there. Mike Newell's round me up, beat him up. So, <laughs> it's in the papers. I'm meant to be at home ill. It's in the fucking papers, isn't it? So, starting to see, I get two weeks fine. Two weeks wages fine. So, he, fuck, that's like 30 odd grand. Fuck. It's going to kill me. So, let it come through and think, oh, shit. I'm getting big shit now. So I appealed. So when the appeal went, Harry went, oh, for fuck's sake, race. Because it ain't Harry. It's, it's the, it comes from the board. The, 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 you have to sign a uh, uh, disciplinary fucking sheet at the start of every season. So, you know what I mean? Blah, 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 blah. So anyway, Harry's got fucking hell fine. You know, fucking fine him. Because it's on the sheet. It must be saying on the sheet. So Harry thinks I'm going to get fined about 500 quid or something. Two weeks wages. <laughs> so I'm going to appeal you. No, I didn't mean it that, mate. I went, I don't need to give me some ground. I went, no, fuck you, you got too far, Harry. You got too far, you know what I mean? I didn't want to give him a tell. When I, once I knew he was on his back foot, just give me some ground. No, you fucking got too far. <laughs> so I get the best sports barrister from South Africa. I fly him in first class, put him up in the Dorchester for a week, everything on tab. Don't fucking worry about that, son. We're taking these cunts to the cleaners. <laughs> <laughs> so we go in front of the FA, destroy fucking Harry. Absolutely. Harry and someone else with him from the club. 
absolutely destroyed. My mum fucking barristers him in fucking bits. Twists yeah, his fucking that. blood, right? Twists yeah. his blood. Say, goes. Right, we miss the phone, Mr. Ruddock, not guilty, 30 grand. I've tried. I'm going, unlucky eight. Right? <laughs> unlucky eight. <laughs> I'll give me bill with for forty thousand pounds. Sorry, Razor. This ain't a court of law. You have to pay your own fucking expenses and money and all that. I went, what? Larry went, unlucky Razor. <laughs> 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 oh, it's fucking I got five, brilliant. I got five forty. Got away me. Five thirty. Got away me. Cost me forty. <laughs> oh. <laughs> He was having Dom Perignon, this fucking <laughs> parasite. <laughs> fucking hell. Oh, that is the best. I don't, know, I don't know how fucking cheap prices are in a doctor's cell, but I think he was having the fucking top end ones. Fucking prices. <laughs> when we had Chris Akabusi on the show, he explained the science behind Mikel Antonio from an athlete's perspective. He himself is too brave and too honest for his own good. He's been asked to play a role where he he has got to run short bursts, high speed off the net. Now you, no athlete can do that at infinitum. You can't do it. So if you watch him, he comes out and for 15 minutes, he does, he can do his reps. He can do the, the repetition runs, right? Now, his, mus, his muscle structure is fast twitch fibers. So he's got big muscles, with, if we say in, in an inch, he might have a figure, a hundred fast twitch fibers in an inch, absolutely repping 10 to the dozen, right? But when he gets an oxygen deficit in there, because of the rate they're going, he gets a knot, the knots bind, bind, and he gets a, a jagged pull, <laughs> hamstring is popped. Now, he, he, what would normally happen as a sprinter, is you'd have rests. So you'd say to him, okay, I want, I know you can't do this in football, okay, but I'm just telling you as an athlete, you could do three times seven minute bursts with 10 minute recovery. So you could say to him, minute five to 13, I want eyeballs out, I want seven reps. Then you've got to come off. And once they come off, ease off a different role. And you'd have if it was me, you'd have another sprinter who would replace him and do that. And if they were alternating and repping, it'd be great. But what you see, he goes eyeballs out for 15 minutes, and then you see him, he's on his hands on his knees, he's absolutely wrecked. But then a ball comes over, and even though he's wrecked, he goes again and hamstring goes. And it's a no-brainer. I do, I don't, I don't, I don't know who the physio is, I don't know who the sports scientist is, but it's a no-brainer. You cannot ask your high-performing aspirin athlete to be doing reps 15 minutes on the go and not expecting to break down. It doesn't surprise me. And so you see him, and then and he comes back out again in the second half. It gives you another 15 minutes, and then boom, hamstring goes. Mm. And guess what? Fredericks, it happens to Fredericks. Fredericks, he, he, he's okay. doing reps. He's doing, he's doing 100-meter reps up and down the wing, and he, he, you wonder why his hamstring goes. You can't do it. Whereas Kufal, who's not... I mean, I'm not saying he's not fast, but not compared to Fredericks. He can do because he's got more speed endurance base, a slower twitch fiber. So he mm. can run more up and down reps without having the, because rather than having a hundred um, 
Bastard's fibres in an inch, he might only have 35 or 45. So, mm. so, so it's, that, it's, 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 it's that physiology, it's that oxygen deficit that means that the, the fibres get mangled and they break down and he dies. Mm. Mm. Fascinating, absolutely mm -hmm. fascinating. I mean, I think I know the answer to this question, but there's nothing we can do to help him, is there? It's just who he is. As he's no, you know, the, the problem for him is that now he's broken down so many times. So when, when, when the um, muscle recovers, I'm sure the physios are all over this, right? But when the muscle recovers, like, like if, you, if you cut your, your arm, a scab grows over, doesn't it? A scab grows over, and then when the skin has viability, there's always some sort of little line. It's a little line in your skin. The, 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 the viability is not 100% perfect. There's always some little line. Well, if you imagine he's got those sort of lesions in his muscle. Now, the lesion itself is strong, but where it connects to the good muscle is weak. So you've got a strong bit of scar tissue stuck in your muscle, and then you've got weak break points either side. And it's them that pop, making the scar bigger and bigger and bigger. Now, I suspect that when he gets his physio, they, they, they're brilliant and they break it down so the line is as, as thin as possible. But you know, in the end, like anything, if you repair anything, it's always worse than the original model. There's always going to be those little knots in it somewhere along the line. And so I just think, I just think this, this fella has got muscles that have got scar tissue all over the place. I, I mean, I don't know. You know, I'm not a physio. I'm only talking about my amateur anatomy and physiology that I learned through being an athlete. I learned as a, a PTI uh, when I was in the army. You know, I'm sure we've got well-paid physiologists, but I think his muscle has got unwanted scar tissue in various areas, and it's going to break down. It's going to. I, I knew you, as soon as it's not sure gonna, he's going to break down because he can't help but break down because he's broken down so many times before. Never mind Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone. It's all about Lou Macari and the Hell Spa hypnotist. Here's Ian Bishop with the story. He wanted Georgie Gailey Dixie. He was the other fatties, Alan McKnight. It ended up once I once I'd seen Frank was going. I went, you know what? That should be fun. <laughs> so I agreed, and I wasn't that fat, to be fair. You know, I, I, I think I was 6% body fat. Ari, Ari won't tell you that same thing. He'll tell you in his book I was 32 pounds overweight. <laughs> That's another fucking human being. <laughs> I'm, still not that, I'm still not that heavy now, 55. <laughs> but anyway, anyway, what it was is, is we went there, and it was, it was I mean, it was horrible. It was, it was a lovely place, but horrible. We were eating fucking lettuce and apples and and we ended up buying a packet of digestives for 10 quid off two women that were there. <laughs> we were that hungry. He was having us up at six o'clock in the morning running. And then the rest of the day was was work and no food. And he had this, he had this thing, he said, and I remember him saying to me, just because you're thin doesn't mean you're not fat. And I thought, <laughs> okay, let, let me sit on that one for a while. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> And I think he was gauging by he was gauging us by the horses. You take a pound <laughs> off a horse and it, and it runs a length further or something like that. And that's yeah. what he was, that's what he said to us. He didn't like us having a beer, which God knows if he knew that he wouldn't have signed me. <laughs> so he, we he'd gone and he told us we've got to go. So we're struggling in there, aren't we? And then Frank gives it one night. He goes, 
I've got a business meeting loser. Okay, if I nip out, but I'll come back and everything, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll be back on time. Don't worry. He went, yeah, he comes back in, doesn't he? And we're there like fucking Bobby's chance. And he's, he's wearing this McDonald's hat. <laughs> he's got ketchup down the side of his face. <laughs> horrible. He was horrible. Anyway, we get over that night. The final night, uh, they're doing like a show in the, in the big room there and he got all the guests coming. It was a hypnotist, right? And Lou had been complaining about his toothache the whole time we were there, right? And so it's about, I don't know, we'd noticed when we first arrived, there was a pub, the long driveway, it's about a mile long. There's a pub right at the right at the gates. So we obviously stared at it as we came in. So this night, the hypnotist is on and the hypnotist goes, Has any, and he's got one of them armchairs sitting in the front. And he goes, has anyone got any ailments, any back problems, any, any pains or aches or whatever? We've gone, yeah, he's got a toothache. Lou's gone, no, no, I haven't. I haven't. We've gone, he has. He's got a toothache. He's been complaining for days. So he goes, oh, come up here then, sir. Lou goes, no, no, I'm fine. He goes, come up here. So Lou goes up there. And I don't know if people go under or, or they don't go under. But he put Lou in a trance. As soon as he put him in a trance, we fucked off and went down the pub. <laughs> <laughs> we, we, we had to stay behind, right? Bear in mind, we're running at six in the morning. We had to stay behind. We got back at five in the morning, right, to the rooms. We literally, we literally had time. We got undressed, got in bed, got out the other side of the bed and put our kit on. To go down, <laughs> and then somebody noticed a bit of paper on the floor in the room, and it was from the manager, uh, the manager of the place. He went, "Oh, Mr. McCarty had to leave at eleven o'clock last night." <laughs> <laughs> so we got away with it. <laughs> I don't know how long you slept in that chair for. Here's Callum Davenport reliving a serious family domestic that nearly cost him his life. Like from the outside, it's you know, obviously it sounds horrific. It was, it was, it was horrific. You know, I was in hospital for a month. Uh, did, I lost half of my blood. I had transfusion. Yeah, like resuscitated twice. Um, but Fuck it was just my, my, yeah. My sister, my sister date like bad boys, you know. And she, <laughs> she fucking I'd say, yeah, she, <laughs> they're even worse than you, mate. Man, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think I, was, I think I was jealous. Yeah. <laughs> but we, we, you know, we growing up as uh, me and my sister, we had it a bit rough, you know, at times. So going into my, my sister had had a, a young child whose dad he got he he'd got life for armed robbery. So his dad. So we used to spend a lot of time with with my nephew, and we'd have him and stuff like that. And then this new guy came on the scene, and he he'd already smashed like a car up that my mum had bought. There was just loads going on behind the scenes. And me and my sister had a Barney about it saying, listen, this, this is another geezer that he's not going to hang around. Like, he, he's, he, he's a flipping head case. And me, me and my sister had a like Barney, a Barney about it. And it kicked, it kicked off a little bit. And the, and, and the police, the police came, they sorted it all out. Um, and me and my dad was there actually. Me and my dad left at my sister's house. And then he he came back to my sister's house, and my sister my sister started saying, "My brother have been here and sort of beat me up while you've been out in town." Blah blah blah. And I know all this because I've had all the police reports, and like it's all been pieced together. And he he just took a, a knife from my sister's kitchen, 
and drove round to my mum's house where I was. And um, he came around the corner and my mum, my mum was in the middle. My mum came in the middle and it looked like he punched my mum. So I was thinking, what is he doing? But he actually stabbed my mum like, with oh, a knife. Jesus. Yeah. And then the next thing, next thing I know, he just stabbed me in the leg, like in my main archery in my leg. And uh, I just passed out. So I don't really, I don't really remember it. because I, I was gone. And oh, um, fucking yeah, hell. next thing I was just w- woke up in hospital thinking, what is going on? So what happened to him? He surely got put away for that, didn't he? Yeah, he got uh, he got six years, and then um, he appealed because I don't know why. He, um, I don't think he had many convictions, and um, he, he got it reduced to four, so he did two years. Wow! And is he out now? I mean, oh, but, well, yeah, yeah, he's out be. now. Yeah, yeah, he's out now. Yeah. When what's the relationship like now? I'm assuming there isn't much of one. No, nah, like my sister, my, him and my sister, they had another two kids together. So my sister's what got three after kids. That? Yeah, they had two kids together, yeah. Fucking hell. Then, like, he, I know, he, he's still knocking her. Like, my mum's in the middle, so I, I haven't spoken to my sister since. Um, oh. There's been, there's been, there's, I've, I've, I've written her a letter and stuff like that, you know, and she, she's wrote one back. There's been a little bit of communication, but nothing. Um. Like we don't really, we don't see each other, but my mum's in the middle. And, um, and your mum's got to try and be a, like a mother-in-law to this bloke, has she? No, nah, no, nah, he, he, uh, they've, split, they've split up now. She's, oh, she's, right, getting, she's actually get, she's just flown out to St. Lucia, actually. She's getting married to some other geezer. Uh, what's he like? There we are. Wow. I mean, so that is... Yeah, yeah, so she, she's uh, she's set off to get married. Hopefully, she's settled down, mate. You know. But, yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm really obviously don't want to put you on the spot, but how's it? How is that all sort of mentally to deal with? Because I mean, that's a bit of a head fucker. So we're not not to beat around the bush here. I mean, how did you handle yeah. that on the men, mental aspect of it all? Yeah, well, because uh, what happened was when it when it happened, I then spent about eighteen months doing rehab work. Yeah, at, at West Ham, and then then I then I come to an agreement with West Ham and I left and um, I went and did my own training so I, w- I was doing my I was trained I, I just got my head down I just surrounded myself with a few pe- few people mm. and I literally mate I, I, you know I'm not even on social media I don't do any of that stuff <clears throat> so I just kind of um, just sort of like got my head down and surrounded myself with people that I trusted mm. and just try to get back back to the level but then I found like my right ankle I had to have it I had to have it skin graft because I had what's called compartment syndrome where my leg, my leg had swollen up so bad that they had to like relieve the pressure mm. and it damaged, it damaged the nerves in my, in my right ankle. So my nerve nerves weren't firing. So I couldn't jump from pr- properly off my right leg. Mm. So then I had to go and see a specialist who, um, he said, you've got permanent nerve damage. So I said, well, what, does, what does that mean? Will I pass a medical anywhere? Can I play again? And he said, have you got insurance? I said, yeah. He said, "Well, I, I suggest you take your insurance, and because uh, you won't get back, you won't get back to that level. So that, that's that's what I ended up doing." This is Stephen Bywater talking about Paolo Di Canio. He was passionate, he was dedicated, and he he knew how good he was. He was the best player I've ever seen. Really, consistently, he was talented. Like he was a magician. You know, yeah. you you play these little five sides, and he was so. It was kind of sexy the way he played. Do you know what I mean? He was, he was slick and he was sexy and his technique mm. was so good and he was pinpoint. But 
he was measured. He was very calculated in everything he did. And he was a, a, an ultra prof- professional, proper like in the gym, uh, didn't have days off. Um, and then when he gave, went into management and, and, he, um, and he treated the Sunderland players with no days off, then he went to Swindon and no days off with players. I was telling my mates who were playing there, listen, he didn't have a day off as a player. He doesn't, he doesn't know a day off. He's just passionate 100% about football. Mm. And that's, you know, he, he he was another one. He was just, he was just talented. He was a freak, to be honest. He was like up there with, with a freak of, uh, of talent, the way he was, the way he moved, the way he could just, but he was, um, he was hard to deal with as a, as a manager because you had to kind of let him do what he wants, which was, mm. which was um, tough for some lads to see because they couldn't get, he was treated differently. Well, yeah, he, he had yeah. to be because he was uh, he was different himself because he was passionate and he was he was on another level. Mm. Was it easy to get on with, Steve? Uh, I've had a few run-ins with him. Um, he respected everyone, but if you weren't pulling your weight to his level or what he thought you should be, you'd you'd know, you'd know about it, <laughs> and you wouldn't agree with it. And uh, <laughs> he could have like a little tantrum kind of thing sometimes, but. That's because he was so passionate. Do you know what I mean? When people are so, mm. when people are on another level, I guess they get frustrated. So he probably frustrated with a few few players, but in training and in games because they weren't on his level. And that's just being honest. When we spoke to Stuart Robson, we asked him what went wrong with the side after the success of the '86 season, and he gave us quite a controversial answer. Uh, I think, I think that the attitude of the players wasn't quite right. Um, I talked about being selfish. There were a lot of selfish players there that were looking after themselves. Um, there was a lot of infighting, I would say, amongst the players. Uh, I think the the manager had lost um, the discipline of the players. I think he'd lost focus on, on what should be happening. There was no real defensive structure. Um, uh, there was a lot of injuries. The player, there was a lot of injuries. And it was, it was almost an attitude. I mean, the physio quite often said, oh, it doesn't matter if we go down because... We have our best seasons in the second division. <laughs> that, that seemed to be the attitude, you know. Oh, yeah, you know, right. some, some of our best seasons have been in the second division. You know, oh dear, never mind. And that, Is that, that Rob Jenkins? Was, yes, I'm afraid. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, a, a lovely, lovely bloke, but that, that, yeah. that's quite often what he said. Um, and uh, yeah, it, 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 that was the attitude that probably sort of summed up West Ham at that time. They were, they were it was, no one's really fighting to, to stay up. Well, do you know what? It, it it shocks me to hear that because there were two things shocked me actually. One is the kind of the, the the attitude and the infighting, so to speak, but also that that would happen under Johnny Lyle because you speak to any ex pro um, that was close to John at the time, and they all said they'd they'd go for a wall for him. So under his I know obviously I know he lost his job eventually, but under his leadership, I'm surprised that it, it, it was allowed to deteriorate that much, you know? Yeah, I mean, John Light was a very, very nice man, very good manager, a uh, decent coach as well, but he didn't always take the coaching. He'd only come out on certain days and at certain times. There was other, there was other coaches who were, again, nice people, Ronnie Boyce, Mick McGiven. But the players had a lot of power at West Ham at the time. You know, and I'm, I'm not going to mention names, but there was two or three people that thought they ran the club. Really? Uh, yeah. And they thought they, and, and they would almost, you know, almost give the thumbs up, thumbs down when new players came in, that, how they would help, they would be treated. You know, really? and uh, yeah, I, I found it very, very, um, I found it wrong in, to, to a certain degree. 
uh, you know, there's there were several players that I would, uh, yeah, I, I wouldn't, I, I would say I didn't get on with. So when you say kind of made a decision as to how they'd be treated, did you mean almost like a kind of click slash almost bit of a bullying culture? Oh, football is, is there's massive bullying culture in football. You know, it's not just at West Ham or, or Arsenal or Coventry where I played. There's a massive bullying culture in football. Everybody looks after themselves. They get their little cliques and they don't want their position taken. Um, they want to do things that they want to do. It always makes me laugh when people say, oh, a, a good old old player, you know, he gets around the, the younger players and he tells them what they should be doing. And quite often it's the older player looking after himself, you know. And when I was coaching, I always found the older players were the ones that would, would, wouldn't carry out the instructions because they know they could be caught out. So they'd hide their lack of pace by doing something they shouldn't be doing, by getting somebody else to do their job for them. Um, they'd, they'd, I had a centre-half at, at Wimbledon who wasn't very good in the air. So he used to go and cover the fullback. And every time we, I used to say to him, no, you stay in the box. He'd make some reason why he'd have to go out behind the fullback to cover the fullback. The reason was he, he got exposed in the air. So he did something else. Wow, and, and obviously he, was, he played, played hundred times for for his country, but he, wow. he was he was he was still for me the liability in our defence. Yeah, yeah. Wow. I mean, obviously, Stuart, you, you wouldn't give us names even if we asked you for them, and we wouldn't no, ask you for it's them. Not, it's not fair. No, no, of, of course not. But you know, during what you was witnessing, and, and I know you're saying it happens at all clubs, but to focus on West Ham, I mean, did you see players? visibly uncomfortable with the way they were treated to a point where it was, it was affecting them on an everyday basis. Yeah, it affects their performance. I mean, it's, it's not, I wouldn't say it's bullying in terms of physical bullying. It's not just not given the respect that they deserve, mm. you know? So, and that's, that's quite a lot. That happens a lot in football. You know, if I wanted to, I could ruin a player in, in, in one session, you know, when I was, when I was playing or as a coach, just by saying the right things to them or the wrong things to them, I could ruin his confidence. You know, and, or highlight every mistake he makes. Oh, what's he doing? You know, can't can he pass it to our team? Look at how what's he? They always say it's banter, but it's more than banter. It's it's trying to get up, get after players and trying to ruin their confidence at times. And that's what happened. I would say a lot of West Ham. Finally, here's Don Hutchinson reliving Sandwich Gate at Southampton. And the true version of the story is we play <laughs> Southampton away, and I score for us. I can't remember the I can't remember the scoreline and the timings, but I'm pretty sure I scored the first goal. And we were in a sort of relegation battle at the time. We we're in the sort of bottom five, bottom six, and um, I scored. And then I don't know what it was. Twenty minutes later, someone's broke down our left hand side, and they've put a cross in the box. And I've ran in the eighteen yard box to try and get a header. Well, Matt Letizia he's not trapped me back, and he's been lazy. Tim Flowers has caught it, zinged it straight to to my, up there to Matt Letizia. He's then scored and we come away with a 1-1 draw. So Harry's come in afterwards and he's gone, you fucking lazy cunt, fucking never tracked him back. And I've gone, Harry, I said, I was trying to get us a second goal. I said, I was trying to get us the win. I went, fucking Matt Letizia, he's been that lazy, he hasn't trapped me back. I went, like, nothing to do with me. And he's got nothing to do with you. Typical you, you're always thinking about yourself. And he's having a go at me and I'm having a go at him. And, I've gone, and then in the end, I've gone, which was the, which was the, the sort of straw that broke the cram, uh, camel's back. And I've gone, H, I went, at the end of the day, I went, I've got us a point there. And he's gone, got us a fucking point. <laughs> and then he's just got the plate, plate of Sarnies and he's chucked the plate of Sarnies over my head. Well, you guys know John Moncur, legendary, <laughs> yeah. legendary West Ham player. Yeah. Well, John, like Martin Allen, Absolutely loving it. So John's, I'm looking at John and I can see like, like a Cheshire cat 
he's he's in he's involved, but he's not involved enough to court to get with any banter. So yeah. John then stood in front of where Harry was abusing me, and I'm having to go at Harry, and we're abusing each other. I just dressing room banter. When I say abusing, I sort of say that loosely. We're having a right go at each other. So John Moncur then gets up from his plate from his from his spot, and he's desperate now to get involved in the banter. He stands in front of me and in front of Harry, and he starts taking his kit off. So John took his top off, and if you could try and picture it, Harry's leaning around the side of John to have a go at me. I'm leaning around the side of Monks to have a go at Harry. John then takes his boots off, and we're still at it, me and Harry. John then takes his shin pads and his socks off, and all he's got is his, uh, his shorts and his underpants on. And we're not clicking what he's doing. We're not clocking what he's doing. Harry's still going at me. I'm still going at Harry. And in the end, John Moncur just took all his strides down, bent over and put his ass in front of Harry's face. <laughs> and then Harry's gone. Harry's sort, of, Harry sort of clocked what's happening and gone, John, he went, do me a favour, will you get out of the way? And then John's had a go at Harry and gone, Harry, leave what you He went, he's got us a point there. And then Harry's had a go at John and John's had a go at Harry. John just wanted to get, because he didn't, he didn't come on. You know what John was like? He used to come on, get a yellow card and go back off. I don't think he came on. So he just wanted to get involved somehow. And it was carnage. <laughs> oh, imagine, I'd love imagine, to have seen imagine that. Monks just pulling his pants over. Imagine <laughs> Monks pulling his pants over and, he's, and, he's, and his ass is in front of Harry's face. Now he's trying to lean around the side of his ass, trying to have a go at me. Oh, <laughs> but I, I bet the other boys were cracking up, weren't they? I, to be fair, mate, I, 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 think they, I think they never had a clue what was actually going on. I mean, really? half of the lads like Bish and... and Oh, well, yeah, I mean, I can't remember the team on the day, but if Bish was there at Anvil Martin, or Martin, especially Martin Allen, he'd have been absolutely buzzing. He'd have probably took the sandwich off the, off the, off the spec and probably ate it. He'd have probably took a bite of the cheese and onion and went, ah, cheese and onion, and probably had a bit of tuna or something. <laughs> it's that time again. With Vanguard advice, no matter what your retirement goals are, they can help you get there and enjoy it for years to come. The financial journey is all yours, but you never have to take it alone. That's the value of ownership. Visit Vanguard.com and explore Vanguard advice. All investing is subject to risk. Fund shareholders own the funds that own Vanguard. Services are provided by Vanguard Advisors, Inc., a registered investment advisor. You had to know that when Wingstop set out to make a crispy, juicy chicken sandwich, they wouldn't make it in just one flavor. They'd make it in all 12. Like lemon pepper, mango habanero, hickory smoked barbecue, and OG hot. So why have one new favorite chicken sandwich when you can have 12? Try the new sauced and tossed Wingstop chicken sandwich today for only $5.49 at Wingstop, where flavor gets its wings. Valid for a limited time and available at participating Wingstop locations only while supplies last. Price subject to applicable taxes and fees. Away days are great, but there's nothing quite like playing at home. The same goes for McDonald's. Maximize your home ground advantage with McDelivery. Order now on the McDonald's app. At participating restaurants, 18 plus serving times, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans.